Well, good morning, Tri-Cities Church. Uh, welcome to Tri-Cities Church. Hey, if you're with us here for the first time this morning, we do uh, welcome you. We are journeying through the Gospel of John, and that was uh, the Gospel of John animated for us in uh, video. We've been in Gospel of John since the beginning of the year. Uh, we are nearing uh, the end, and um, we are entering those moments where the whole Gospel is Leading, And so if you're here with us this morning, you're here at just the right time to see uh, Jesus, be, um, Jesus be arrested and um, tried and crucified. Uh, and, and we're, oh man, this happened a long time ago, but we're entering into some of the uh, darkest moments in Jesus' life. In fact, scriptures teach us, um, that he was a man like we are, and that um, he was tempted in every way, just as any other man, uh, or he was human just like we are, and tempted just like any other man, and um, felt emotions and pain and hardship and struggle. And so I, um, I consider it um, um, a privilege for us as a church to be able to enter into these dark moments with Jesus um, but only because we know how the story ends. Uh, we enter into these moments, entering them not with angst and anxiety, not with fear and trepidation. We enter them uh, with uh, knowing that the full victory is ours in Jesus Christ because after they arrest him, try him, crucify him, uh, God is going to raise him from the dead, defeating the greatest enemy known to man, and that we now are benefiters. We, are, uh, we benefit, we are inheritors of um, the promise God made to Jesus um, that he would die and be raised to life and eternal life was his to give. Uh, we, are in, we, we inherit that eternal life from Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Well, we got a lot of text to cover, so I don't want to... Um, just talk too much. Let's pray and we will get into our message for this morning. God, we do give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to gather in this place to, um, to hear the word of God read to us, to hear this story that is precious to us read to us. God, these are some of the darkest moments in the life of your son as he walked the earth, God, and all this was leading to this point. God, I thank you that you were with him by your spirit, that you gave him power, that you gave him strength, that you enabled him to walk into these moments faithfully trusting you, one as a witness for us, but two, to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. God, I pray that as we read this scripture and as we study it, God, I pray that you will open our eyes so that we can see, um, that we can see the glory of a God who's fully in control, even in the darkest of nights. See your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Peter, uh, so, so we see Peter in this story. Now, Peter was... Um, at least as I was thinking about it this week, Peter is one of the most uh, memorable of the 12 disciples. In fact, his name is mentioned in John's gospel more than any other of the 12 disciples. And in fact, as I was thinking about it, I was like, you really don't know much about any of the disciples. Maybe a little bit about Matthew. You know a little bit about James. Uh, you know a little bit about John. But the one that you know the most about is Peter. His name is mentioned more in, in fact, in all four of the gospels than any other of the 12 disciples. 
disciples. And so Peter is this one who, whose personality really just would not let him fade into the background. He was always in the forefront. His personality was one that just wouldn't let him play this kind of side role. In fact, you, we see him as being this courageous man, this one who's always willing to step forward when no one else is. He's very outspoken. He's the one that's going to speak up when everyone's shy or fearful. They don't know the right answer. Peter doesn't care if he has the right answer. He's just going to say what's on his mind. He's impulsive. He's a risk taker. He's the one who's going to step out and do the crazy thing. In fact, I believe Peter's probably that friend that you hang around just because you know he's going to say something dumb and you're going to get a good laugh out of it because he's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always speaking first and thinking second. In fact, Peter was that guy that, that all the disciples wanted to be around. In fact, he was part of Jesus's inner circle. There were these three guys. If you uh, read the Gospels, you began to see there were these three that formed Jesus's inner circle. So there was, you know, always in the Gospel, and this is always interesting, um, there's the crowd, right? There's the big crowd that's always surrounding Jesus, following him from place to place. Some of those people went home at night and uh, went back to their families. Then you had the 12 disciples who were literally traveling and living with Jesus. But then you had the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and those were Jesus's closest friends. And here Peter was a part of that um, close friendship group that Jesus had. Now, the first time, if you read back, and if you remember, which I'm sure we all do, uh, back in probably that was January, uh, or or maybe even in February, in in John chapter 1, where Jesus first meets meets Peter. And, And if you remember that story, remember what he did when Jesus meets Peter? His name was Simon at that time. And Jesus gives him a new name and says, you're going to be called Peter. In fact, Peter means rock. And so Jesus sees this guy and he says, you're going to be called rock, right? Rock is your new name. Peter, rock is your new name. And really what Jesus is doing, because he knows that this guy, Peter, right, he knows that he's outspoken. He knows that he's courageous, but he also knows he's a little fickle and, and, and acts first and thinks 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 later, right? He leaves that to, to some other time of day, right? He, he knows this about Peter, but, but he says to Peter, your name's going to be rock, and, and in fact, I'm going to use you in powerful ways. And so Peter knew this. Now, now I try to think back on this story, and I, I consider myself to be a fairly humble guy. Um, fairly. <laughs> not bragging on myself or anything, but I'm pretty humble. Uh, <laughs> But, 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 but if, I, if I were walking with Jesus, right, and, and he called me rock, right, I would have been like, what was that guy, the wrestler, do you smell, do you smell, what, how do you do, what the rock is cooking, whatever, I remember, that was a long time ago, the rock is something totally different now, right, but, I, you know, always, I would, like, if somebody asked my name, it would have been, I am rock, right, I, that would have been the first thing, you wouldn't even have to ask my name, I would have, um, I would have been wearing a shirt saying Jesus named me rock or something like that um, because I would, have been, I would have been into myself. So I imagine this guy, Peter, um, now being called rock by Jesus, was determined to live up to that name. Um, this one that Jesus saw um, strength in. This one that Jesus wanted to use. In fact, Jesus says to him in Matthew chapter 16, after he professes faith in Jesus Christ and confesses him as Lord and the Messiah, the one sent by God, he says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Not on Peter, but this confession of faith. And, and, um, and so Jesus is, is looking at Peter and saying um, that you have what it takes 
um, for me to build the church on your profession of faith, right, on your belief in what I'm doing. And even though you are flawed and messed up and you make mistakes and you uh, speak first, ask questions later, act first, ask questions later, even though you are a messed up, flawed man, um, you are able to profess faith in Jesus Christ. And on that very profession, I'm going to Um, I'm going to build my church. And so we see this image of this guy, Peter, emerging in Scripture. In fact, Peter had these extremely high highs and extreme low lows in his life. Y'all remember Peter? He's the one that was in the boat with the disciples in the middle of the storm. And uh, and Jesus comes walking out on the water uh, towards them. And Peter, um, thinking that... um, I'm not sure what he was thinking, but made the decision to walk out on the water towards Jesus. And and when he gets overwhelmed in his faith, he begins to sink. He had that high moment where he steps out on the boat in faith. But then when his faith gets overwhelmed, he begins to sink because that's just how Peter does things. He has these high highs and these low uh, lows. And um, Peter was... um, he was this guy that was always with Jesus, this, um, kind of like a type A personality, right? He was one to take control, to take charge. He was very dominant. He was in, in your face. And we all, we all have this image of, of, of a person probably that, that's like this. Um, but, but I believe the reason why, um, I believe the reason why Peter is mentioned so frequently uh, in Scripture uh, is because there's a little bit of Peter in all of us, right? And, and there's ways that we can see ourselves in Peter's story. For all of us, there's ways that we can relate to Peter's story. So when we get into the Gospel of John, John chapter 18, where we are this morning, when we get into the Gospel of John, what we see beginning to play out here is that Peter is trusting Jesus. He's been traveling with Jesus. But all of a sudden, here at John chapter 18, and and I want you to uh, remember this journey we've been on in the Gospel of John, because we've gone from this Jesus, right, Jesus who kind of emerges on the scene in in John chapter 1, and John chapter 2 begins performing miracles miracles, beginning with turning water into wine, all those miracles kind of crescendo up to, I think it was John chapter 11, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so we see this kind of a crescendo effect in the gospel of John, where the miracles of Jesus uh, amaze the disciples more and more. And so the disciples now, at this point, are walking with Jesus, probably with their chests pumped out, right? Just uh, very proud to be Jesus's disciples. And, and, uh, and so when we we get here in John chapter 18, all this has been building up to this point, um, all this has been building up to this point has the appearance of crumbling, right? It has the appearance of beginning to fall down. And, and so while at each step, um, Jesus was, um, his actions were strengthening the disciples' faith up until this point, at this point, at this point, their faith is beginning to be tested. And it begins with Judas. Judas, one of the 12 disciples who turns on Jesus. He turns on Jesus, and not just that, because it would have been one thing. Like, it, it would have been one thing if Judas would have just walked out, right? It would have been like, I'm done. Like, I'm, I'm done. I'm going back home. I'm, I'm through with you guys. I really don't want to hang out with you anymore, right? It would have been one thing if Judas would have just walked out as one of the 12, would have just turned his back, gone home, continued his life, got a regular job, been a regular guy, gone, done his nine to five. But what Judas does is he gathers an army, 
right? Uh, a cohort, a Roman co- cohort, the Bible says, uh, and, uh, and, 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 um, and, and goes and hunts Jesus down, so to speak. Look at John chapter 18, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. I want to pause there for a moment just to just take in what's happening there. It says that Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This was the hangout spot for Jesus and his disciples. This was a spot that had become sacred to them over the past three years. This was the spot where the disciples, when Jesus was overwhelmed with the crowds and he needed to get away for a while and pray, this is the spot that he went to. This was the place, and maybe it was just this little cut in the middle of the woods where they had maybe taken some machetes and some, some, some knives and cut down the bushes and the brush and made a little place in the woods where they couldn't be found. But this was the spot in the garden where Jesus often went with his disciples. This is a spot where he trusted those he loved and invited them, not just into this space, but invited them into his life. And Judas knew just where this place was. And so when Judas makes this decision to betray Jesus, here comes Judas, and he's coming with this Roman cohort. If you look in verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. There's a number of things going on. We could wait here in this text for a long time. A cohort's uh, usually around 500, 600 soldiers. Uh, It didn't have to be that many, but what we do know is that it was a large number of soldiers. Another thing that we see is that they came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. This was riot gear in biblical times. They were ready for a riot because Jesus had these crowds that were always following him, and they knew that when they came to arrest him that something was going to go down. They knew that they weren't going to take him without a fight, that somebody was going to get mad, and they came prepared for that. And when they come, they come, look at what it says there, a Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. What's easy to miss there is that this is the Romans and the Jews cooperating with one another. If you remember how this story has gone from this point forward, from this point forward, uh, up until this point, that's what I'm trying to say. If you remember how this story has gone up until this point, um, the Jews and the Romans really did not cooperate with one another. The Romans gave the Jews just a little bit of power and authority to govern their own people, and the Jews took that and tried to lay low, stay quiet, look like they had everything in control because they knew that if they admitted that things were out of control, that the Romans were going to come in and take what little power and authority to govern their own people that they had. And so apparently things had gotten so out of control that they had gone to the Romans and they had said, we need your help to get this guy, Jesus. And so here comes these 500 or so soldiers led by Judas and the chief priests, the Jews, uh, and they are coming to arrest Jesus. Now, Peter has seen this crescendo that we're talking about, starting with the water to wine, ending with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Peter is certain that Jesus is able uh, to deal uh, with, with what's, what's coming. In fact, I, I imagine Peter, um, 
<laughs> I, I imagine Peter almost like pulling up a chair, almost like you're watching something at the theater, right? I, I imagine Peter kind of standing over in the corner with his popcorn going, watch, watch what Jesus is getting ready to do, right? Um, because his, his faith, his confidence has been placed in him after the incredible things that he's seen. Peter's sitting there, you know, with the rest of the 12. I imagine the 12 may be behind him, but Peter's this bold, courageous guy, and he's going, hey guys, watch this, watch this, we're about to see, because this thing has been moving in that direction, right? He just raised somebody from the dead. The next step would have been for him to defeat the 500 Roman soldiers in riot gear, and so Peter's standing there going, watch this. His excitement, I mean, excitement is bubbling over. His heart is pounding, not because he He's nervous, but because he's fully confident that he's getting ready to see Jesus do something spectacular. And so Peter's bubbling over with this excitement and joy at what he's getting ready to see. And then look at what it says. It says in verse 4, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? And so Jesus knew exactly what was happening. And they answered him and said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Imagine the scene, right? Hundreds of Roman soldiers in riot gear with their torches and their weapons, led by the chief priest in his fancy robe with the gold uh, hymns and whatever else he had, maybe even some kind of head thing going on, crown or something. These guys all ready to take Jesus, all psyched up. They had just gotten out of the locker room, right, so to speak, pumping one another. We're going to stop this guy. Tonight is the night we're going to end this thing. And and Jesus says, I am he. And just like that, they fall. And here Peter's going, this is the moment I've been waiting on. And, and I just have this image. You know, they didn't have cars back then. But I, I, like, like I just imagine I have this image of Peter going, hey, the car is running. Let's go. Let's go. They're down. Like they fall on the ground. And Peter's like, let's go. The car is running. Let's go. And Jesus is just standing there. Right? And and, and they get back up, and Jesus starts talking again. In verse 7, therefore he asked them, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. And so here Jesus is not backing down. Jesus is not running. He's surrendering and handing himself over. And Peter just can't wrap his mind around what is happening. They had every opportunity to escape. Jesus could have done the miraculous in this moment and destroyed them. He could have called down fire from heaven and had them burned up. Of all the things Jesus could have done in that moment, Peter's going, of all the things you could have done, you said, I am he, let them fall, and stood there and waited for them so that they could arrest hope. Peter is losing his cool in this moment. This is just not okay. All this has led up to this. Like, we're gonna, like, we did all this for this. Like, we're gonna just, they're just gonna arrest you. Like, this is just the way it's gonna happen. Um, and Peter's type A personality kicks in. 
right? And he takes control of the situation. Now, I imagine Peter pulling this sword, uh, just erratically and clumsily swinging this thing, just going to town. Peter was a fisherman. He knew how to fillet fish. Like, you went to Peter if you wanted catfish, swordfish, maybe a little shark or grouper. Like, that's what you went to Peter for. He would give you a nice, clean fillet for you to fry, right? Put it in some zatarins, you're all good to go. That was what Peter was good for. Peter wasn't fighting an army. In fact, this was just a short little sword. It was a dagger, right? That's what the word means. It's a short sword. It it was meant for uh, stabbing, not slashing, right? You poke. It's a dagger, right? You don't slash with that. And Peter's just swinging this thing. And it hits a guy's ear. Like of all places, right? Hits this guy's ear and cuts his ear off. And look what Jesus does there. Simon Peter then, having a sword and drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? You know, Peter's sword that was pulled out in this moment where it looked like things were totally out of control represents all the ways we fail to trust that God is in control. Peter's sword in this moment represents all the many ways we fail to trust that God is in control. I have lost my job. I don't know how God is going to fix this, I have bills that I have to pay. I have mouths that I have to feed. I have people who have to rely on me. I've got to fix this. God is not in control in this moment. I've got to do something. And what we end up doing is acting erratically and clumsily, just like Peter, because his sword represents all the ways we fail to trust that God is in control control. My marriage is crumbling. It's a relationship that I don't know how to fix. I don't know what to do, but something has to be done. I'm telling you because this thing has gotten out of control. I've prayed. I've asked God. I've asked him to fix it. He hasn't fixed it yet. And now I'm taking matters into my own hand. His sword represents all the ways we fail to trust that God is in control. And we begin acting and acting according to our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own will. And what we fail to see so often when we fail to trust that God is in control, that our actions are positioning us outside of the will of God, which is the safest place we could be. In fact, sometimes it's in those moments. It's in those moments where everything looks like it's out of control, but God is in control. That God gets the most glory when we trust him through those storms of life. When we stay there 
and remain there and trust that God is in control. And what Peter does is he refuses to because this thing is starting to seem like Jesus himself doesn't know what he's doing. He's starting to question God Almighty. He's like, God, I know what you say in the scriptures, but look at this situation. I've prayed to you. I've asked you. I've begged you, and I'm not getting the answers. I'm not getting the answers that I feel like I want or I deserve. And and so I'm taking control of this situation, and I'm going to begin acting in the way um, I'm going to begin acting in the way that you God should I'm going to do something about this situation and I'm going to get myself out of it and and that's what Peter does in that moment and and as I read this story man I think of all the ways that we do that not just that I think about just how easy it is us to do that because that's just the way we're wired we don't sit and remain in suffering in fact we read the story of job and we're like well that's good for job right he can sit there remain there he was sitting in the trash heap and he was suffering Um, But the scriptures record that story because he suffers in faith. He says, I know my Redeemer lives. Even in the middle of this difficult time in my life, I know my Redeemer lives. We read stories like the stories of the Israelites when they're in exile. And we get to um, in Jeremiah where God says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to uh, prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. We read that. We jump to that. And we forget that God says, you're going to sit there for 70 years. Then I know the plan. Plans I have for you, right? Read right before the verses that came there. God says, you're going to sit and suffer for a while. And things are going to seem out of control. And, and God could have said to the people, uh, in retrospect, people are going to read the very same story about the situation that you're in right now, and they're going to see something totally different than what you see. In the story, you see that this thing is out of control, even out of God's control. In retrospect, people are going to look at your own story, and they're going to see that God was fully in control all the way through it. And what Peter does here is all he can see when he's in the moment is that God was not in control of this situation. And he had to take control, and that's just what he does. And here's what happens. If you, if you read a little bit further in the story, he begins, um, he begins to distance himself, literally in this story. He begins to distance himself from Jesus. Um, Still following, but following at a, at a distance. Because he's, he's not sure if Jesus can be fully trusted at this moment. If you read a little bit further in John chapter 18, verse 
15, listen to what it says. It says, Simon Peter was following Jesus, so, and so was another disciple. Now the other disciple who was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door side on the other side, on the so on the but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, "You are not one of this man's disciples, are you?" He said, "I am not." You see, Peter was still following. He was following. At a distance, he was giving Jesus one more opportunity to do the right thing. To act in a way that was spectacular and powerful and to release himself from this situation. And I see my own life and our lives following the pathway of Peter's. That when God doesn't act in the way that we feel like he should or the way we think he should or a way according to our own wisdom, if we were God, that we would, we begin to distance ourselves from Jesus, but we still follow at a distance, right? We're still following, and we're just waiting for him to act in some way that we think that we should. And Peter here begins to deny that he knows Jesus because if if he doesn't really know what he's doing, right, if this really is the end of the road for this, right, I, I don't really want to be associated with him, right? I, I don't really want to be one who gave my life for nothing, is what Peter is thinking. And so he begins to deny even knowing Jesus. If you look a little bit further, because he denies him three times. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, like, this guy's going, I'm never going to forget your face, right? You cut off my brother's ear. Like, I'm never, and I'll never forget a face, especially the face of the one who cut my brother's ear, uh, and uh, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. And here he finds himself distant from Jesus, denying Jesus, separating himself with him, from him, and not there to see Jesus do the spectacular. You know, there's some things that we can learn, I think, from Peter's life because there's so many connections between his life in our life. And I think there's some things that Peter could have learned that if he could go back and do this all over again, he would do it differently. And I think the first thing that Peter would do differently is he would read his Bible and learn to rest in the Lord, right? He would learn to rest in the Lord. That's a biblical phrase, right? Resting in the Lord. It doesn't mean sleeping. It doesn't mean being idle. It means trusting God and being okay 
uh, being satisfied in God in the midst of terrible situations. The New Testament often calls it contentment. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. What he's not saying when he says that, he's not saying the situation around me has worked itself all out. He's not saying I'm okay with the way the world is going and the way things are right now. He said, I'm not okay, but I'm okay being present and resting, trusting in the Lord. And so what Peter could have learned from is just simply in that moment, trusting in the Lord, believing that God had everything in control. In fact, there's a psalm in Psalm 37, um, verse 7. I'm not going to flip there. I'm going to read it from the screen. In Psalm 37, verse 7, listen to what it says. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. It's saying if you learn to rest in the Lord, it's not that you're idle. It's not that you do nothing. But when you learn to rest in the Lord, it takes the pressure off to act. So often when we find ourselves in situations that seem like they're broken, situations that seem like they're out of our control and God's control, we feel the pressure to act, the pressure to fix it. Men are not the only ones who are always trying to fix stuff, right? We find ourselves, all of us, trying to fix it. And we act in ways, and the Bible saying when we feel that pressure to act and we refuse to rest, trust in the Lord, be content in him, we'll find the pressure to act, and we will act in ways that are ungodly. We will act in ways that are clumsy and erratic, just like Peter. I believe God is saying to his church through this passage of Scripture, um, learn from Peter's mistakes when things begin to look out of control. Rest in the Lord. You don't have to act immediately. It's not an opportunity for you to act in ways that are outside of God's will in order to fix it. Because acting outside of God's will will never bring you within God's will. It only gets you remembered as the one who denies Jesus. Peter had an opportunity in this moment, and he had an opportunity to rest in the Lord, to trust in the Lord. I want to imagine how much differently his story would have been told. His story would have been told. Peter was the outgoing one. He was the courageous one. He was the one who always spoke first, thought about it later, acted first, thought about it later. He was that guy. But in the moment where it really mattered, when the Romans came to arrest Jesus, when he saw everything beginning to crumble, have faith. That's how the story would have gone. Have faith like Peter, the one who trusted. And now his story has encouraged us all. Rather, Peter's story is one of don't be like Peter and deny the Savior of the universe. 
You see, the Bible's encouraging us to rest in the Lord. The second thing that I think that Peter could have learned from is learning to wait on the Lord. We must learn to wait on the Lord. In fact, resting and waiting go hand in hand. If we look back in John, or not John, Psalm chapter 37, verse, we'll read right, right back in, in, in verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret. So rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Resting and waiting always go hand in hand in the Christian life. We're not just sitting back idle, resting, but we are waiting for the Lord to act, and we are moving when the Lord acts, we're moving faithfully with him. So it says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his ways. Basically, this is saying, don't look around and justify your actions based on what everyone else is doing and it looks like it's working out for them, right? So don't feel this pressure to act according to the ways of this world. What does Romans say? Romans chapter 12, right? Do not, uh, do not conform to the ways of the world, the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Do not fret because of him who prospers in his ways, because of the, because of the man who carries out evil schemes. Cease from anger, count to ten, Reaffirm your trust in the Lord. Forsake wrath. Choose to act in a different way and to trust the Lord. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. You see, waiting is about expectation. And so we're not just resting, just saying, okay, I guess God's not going to do anything. I'm going to rest here till the day I die in this situation. But it's saying we're resting here because there's a God who hears, who cares. There's a God who has a will in this world, and his will is right. His timing may not align with our timing, but he's always right on time. And so we rest and we wait in expectation, knowing that there's a God who loves us and cares for us, who's gracious and compassionate, has not forgotten about us, has promised to never forsake us, a God who's going to act on our behalf. We just need to be still and wait, because what Peter was thinking this whole time, that God is going to do something spectacular. I mean, Peter was standing back going, I know God's going to do it now, right? When the soldiers fell down, when Jesus said, I am he, and Peter's like, let's go. When, when he said that, Jesus is going, no, I got this under control. Let's just rest and wait. And it's true. You are going to see something spectacular. If Peter would have just rested and waited on the Lord, he would have seen something spectacular, namely the crucifixion, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection, which is far greater than Jesus running from some guys that just fell on the ground, right? And so when we refuse to rest and wait on the Lord, we end up uh, shortcutting ourselves and seeing the glory of the Lord in our lives. Peter, if he would have just rested and waited, he would have told his friends, y'all, it was so hard. Man, I had that sword. My hand was on it the whole time. I just imagined myself you know, Bruce Lynn, uh, Jackie Channon, whatever, these guys. Um, but he chose to wait, to wait on God's timing. I think if Peter could say something to us, he would say, church, learn to rest and wait on the Lord. Don't feel pressured to act just because things seem out of control. 
Let God lead you, and the leadership of God will lead you within God's will, which is the safest place for you to be. The third thing I think we need to learn from Peter, and I think Peter would have done well to learn himself, is we must learn to humble ourselves. We must learn to humble ourselves. In fact, the stereotype of pride is often, I think, the greatest hindrance to true humility. Um, Pride is often stereotyped as this overactive ego, this person that's just proud of themselves, this person that has their chest pumped out, this person that walks with their head up high, this person that just thinks they're the greatest thing God ever made. That is the stereotype of pride. Now, while that is true, that that is pride, there is also pride hiding in every one of us, no matter how much self-esteem we have, no no matter how confident we are, there is pride within each one of us, and that pride rears its ugly head when when we act in ways um, like Peter to fix and solve, and we don't consult. Consult's a bad word. That's kind of a rigid word. Um, we don't trust, and we don't pray, and we don't, this is a church word, discern God's will for our lives. Pride is seen when we refuse to rest, quiet ourselves before the Lord, wait, wait on instruction from the Lord, and then act. Pride is seen when we feel like in this moment we know what the right thing to do is and we um, cut out the middleman, so to speak, right? We cut God out of the equation and we simply act. You know, when we talk about praying and, um, um, you know, it's, it's a thing. It's not really a formula, but when, when we pray, usually when I pray, I end my prayers in, in Jesus' name. Um, and, and it's not a formula. You don't have to say, like, in Jesus' name in order for your prayers to be heard by God. And if you, if you forget to say in Jesus' name or if you just say, bye-bye, God, it's like if you just say that, a um, little, little, little informal, but it, it works. Um, he, he still hears that prayer, right? If you don't say in Jesus' name, it's not, it's not according to some, some formula. Um, um, but, but in Jesus' name is recognizing, right, um, that it's not just me telling God or saying this is what I want God to do. I'm praying for God's will to be done. I'm saying what's in, in line with Jesus' name, Jesus' character. I'm saying as a disciple of Jesus Christ, one who walks with him and talks with him, did I bring up that song a couple of weeks ago? That song is just in my heart. We're going to sing that song. Um, as one who walks with him and talks with him, um, yeah, I want my life to be aligned with his and my actions to be in line with his. And that takes true humility, this quieting of your soul, and willingness to listen for God, to speak to you, and a willingness to do 
ooh, it doesn't seem like it's going to fix it. Because Jesus says to Peter in so many words, I got this. And Peter's going, that's not going to fix this. The joker's still going to tie you up. They're still going to arrest you. They're still going to beat you. They're still going to spit in your face. That guy's right now making the nails they're going to put in your hands. You can hear the axes carving out the cross. They've already got two other guys they're going to crucify you with. They've already picked out the hill they're going to raise your body up on. They've already got the soldiers standing with spears who are going to pierce your side. They've already got the tomb plan. They already have all these plans for your life and for your body. And, and you just saying, I, I've got this. And, and, and not acting is not going to fix it. You know, every, every Sunday we have a chance um, to come to these tables and share in communion. And um, on these tables, there's bread and there's juice um, that's prepared for us to take. And it's a reminder, um, it's a reminder for us that the, um, that the darkest moment is just before dawn. That for Jesus in these darkest moments, that the sun was going to rise. In these moments where his disciples were going to turn their backs on him. They were going to deny him and they just couldn't trust that he was in control. Even though he had told them this was going to happen. That the darkest moment came just before dawn. And we're reminded when we come to these tables and we break bread together and we share in communion together, we're reminded that, yeah, Jesus went through that darkest moment and God raised him from the dead. And as a result of that, we can go through our dark moments as well. And the sun shines on the other side of them and God is glorified through them. So this morning, as you come to the table, I want to challenge you to bring with you your dark moment. Bring with you your dark moment, mourning and grieving. But then live into the tension that is the Christian life. Mourning and grieving while celebrating and experiencing tremendous joy because we know that there's a resurrection waiting for us. That dark moments don't last always. That God has conquered death. That Jesus went to the cross so that our dark moments wouldn't stay dark always. Let's pray. God, we do give you thanks. We do give you thanks for Peter's story. 
And God, we would celebrate. We would celebrate if he would have acted in a way that was faithful, in a way that trusted you through these dark moments. But God, I am thankful that we have this story of a man who walked with Jesus himself and struggled in dark moments so that we know that it's okay for us to struggle in dark moments. But God, I pray that you help us to learn from Peter, that you help us to learn to rest and wait on you, that you help us learn to constantly practice humility, knowing that that's the only way that we can walk in your will. God, that we will declare you to be our Messiah our Lord. And as we walk, God, I pray that we won't walk the course that we've planned out for ourselves, but we will walk in the way that you planned for us. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.